This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Greetings, Omo sapiens, and welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. We've got a great show for you today where we, stateside folk, explore the greater continent of American making. That's right, made in the Americas. Join us as we dive into some of the earliest made American instruments with the illustrious Ben Hebert, followed by an interview with wandering luthier Damian Sapani from Saltillo, who has traveled in his mobile luthier shop all over the continent. Thank you for joining us, Ben Hebert. We are venturing today into history of American making. And of course, I thought we should have a Brit on for this. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Ben, you are basically our, our historian. You have got some records that you found of some of the earliest American making happening in Barbados. Why, why Barbados? Well, it's, I mean, I think, I mean, if, if we're going to sort of talk about the earliest stuff, we've really got no idea how early that, that, that comes. So, you know, there must have been something that came over with the Mayflower. It's really sort of the luck of the draw of where the documents are. And, you know, I'm sure that archaeologists will find other stuff. I hope they will. Yeah, me too. But Barbados sort of being a part of you know, the big sort of North American colonies, there's a, a number of interesting things that happen in the middle of the 17th century. And, well, the big thing is that we uh, we have a big civil war. And one of the ways of trying sort of dealing with stuff at the end of the civil war is that there's a sort of an agreement that a lot of uh, the royalists should, who sh- should be sent into exile, but should be sent into exile in a place where they won't feel too hard done by the exile. So there's a huge influx in the 1650s of uh, of royalists into Barbados. The result of that is that these are actually quite high, quite sort of high cultured people, and we know from well, we know from one of them who was actually a lute player in the English court, a guy called Richard Ligon, and he comes over a little bit later in the 1650s and writes a, a big travel diary of of his adventures in the West Indies. And he seems to be totally obsessed with, with music. He takes he takes a, a theorbo with him. I'm sorry. He takes he takes a what with him? A theorbo with him. Uh, that really, really, really long, impractical uh, lute. Okay. Which is all the rage at the time. And there's various things. He comes along an old padre on the island of Saint Jago, who plays in such an antique style that he actually sort of muses that. You know, this was how music was in Queen Elizabeth's reign. And uh, and when he comes to Barbados itself, it transpires that because of the lack of culture there, the uh, the royalists have gone and hired the Blackfriars consort uh, to to come and uh, play with them so so that they would have as good music as, as the best music in London. So this is like sort of bringing one of the great quartets of our time over to... Barbados, which was essentially a prison camp. Okay. And okay. what we what we hear is that they at great at great cost they came over to Barbados, got got sick, gave about one concert and couldn't stand the place and pleaded to go back home. And that's sort of that's all about the end of the story. But then we find in the sixteen sixties, so you know, just a few years later, there's uh there's a very successful uh, instrument maker called Christopher Wise and he's particularly known because there's the famous diary of Samuel Pepys and in 1661 Christopher Wise makes a vial for him and he disappears from view but he is found in a sugar plantation in Barbados from 1668 okay and whether he gave up instrument making or carried on or whatever we've had we've at least got one of the first english makers that we know of who's uh you know who's a successful proper london maker uh arriving in barbados and to add to that in 16 
1999, yes. a music teacher called Benjamin Healy comes back from Barbados to London. And we actually know that if you've heard of Barrack Norman, the great English maker, he actually lives on top of Barrack Norman's shop uh, very briefly and he dies. And in his, inv- in his will, there's, uh, there's various nice English files and violins, but there's also three guitars by Munden, so whoever Munden was, damaged on their return from Barbados. So guitar making Barbados 1690s, why not? I'm into it. So this is, you know, gives us a nice snapshot of what's going on. And we haven't found anything on the mainland of North America, but you can kind of bet your bet your bottom dollar something did happen. We think that Barrett Norman's son went over to Virginia, okay. but we don't know whether he made instruments when he was there. Now, you said that this is more of a high culture thing in Barbados. In this case, and yes. In this case. And you also have another story of low culture happening in the Americas. Well, I thought what I'd do is, I, is I'd cough and politely and... Uh, do it. And then I'd just narrate for a while the story of Jeffrey Stafford. It's it's really tricky because this appears in a in a book about published in 1890 about the history of the piano in America. And I think lot I'm not the only person. I think several people have tried to go further than that and, and try to discover where this thing is cited. And if anybody out there has any good ideas or can find it, please do because you know we've got this this strange this strange source which is two hundred years after everything happened, and it's a great story. So so I'll 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 have a go at it, and it carries like this: Jeffrey Stafford, a lute and fiddle maker by trade, who figures in the relationship indicated, was a Londoner of questionable reputation who was landed in Massachusetts on the order of His Majesty King William's government as a transported convict sometime in 1691, along with a batch of 200 other exiled Anglo-Saxons of the same social standing. Stafford was a notorious ruffian, although acting betimes as a sort of technical spirit medium to interpreters of the divine art, or, in other words, occasionally making lutes and fiddles. And the Prince of Orange's party, having used him for their ends, determined to get rid of the gentleman for his country's good by shipping him to the American convict settlements. (laughs) It goes on. (laughs) It's going to be the longest narration you get. (laughs) Great, great. The eminent individuals composing the convict section of the early settlers at that date were sought to be utilised by the infamous Governor Fletcher as protection against the Indians and French. The protection these worthies did, however, was on their own account as freebooters when they found themselves armed. Some became pirates, but a gang in which Stafford was leader struck out across the country and established themselves near Albany in this state, where they were a perpetual terror. Once Stafford sallied frontierward with his gang and cleared out several settlements of the Mohawks, whereupon Governor Fletcher, in a fit of drunken admiration, sent for Stafford to come and consult with him about an Indian campaign and other matters. Stafford, who had previously made violins in the Bay State, came on to New York at Fletcher's invitation, bringing him a violin and lute that he curiously managed in some way to make near Albany. It goes on. Fletcher gave Stafford a regular military commission, we read, and fell in love with the latter's violin playing. Stafford made Fletcher a violin specially and dallied in New Amsterdam sometime so as to sample and commune with the governor's whiskey. (laughs) And he threatened to become a permanency in the executive household. (laughs) One evening, however, the genial Mr. Stafford, while in his cups ran Fletcher's favourite body servant through with the governor's sword, just for a lark, killing him on the spot. Fletcher, meanwhile, looking on highly amused. Presently, Stafford, who in spite of his artistic occupation proper was a remote anarchist, prodded the governor's paunch with the tip of his sword in a playful manner, in a playfully significant manner, 
whereupon the fun terminated. Stafford made violins and lutes between whiles, but meantime got strung up to a tree by a Dutchman upon whom he committed a robbery. He left a family, some of whom descendants now claim to have originally come over on the Mayflower. So there we are, our first mainland violin maker that we know of. I suddenly think that Chris Jacoby needs to do more crazy things. I think so. I mean, there's he's got nothing on Jeffrey Stafford. He's not living up to the reputation of American makers. Should the VSA establish a Jeffrey Stafford Award? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And and uh, there's a there's a lot of things we can't really report on on this show that uh, <laughs> things that people are up to. Yeah. <laughs> While in his cups. I mean, this makes Sawzall's look frankly pathetic, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, Hello, David Burgess. I yeah, I, I am I am living a tame life. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I don't know. I, you don't know. <laughs> uh, one more thing. Um, I I heard that you have sold the earliest known American violin. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I always twitch every time something comes up in the news about another super early American violin because, yeah, I found a, a really interesting violin, uh, viola, actually, uh, which was by Robert Horn, made in 1757 in New York. And so far, so, yes, right at the moment, that is the earliest... American violin that we know of and that went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art so it's in New York where it belongs. Fantastic I love it. Uh, ben thanks for taking us on that virtual tour this evening on Zoom where we got to see your new shop that you've settled into in Oxford. It's coming along beautifully. Uh, I like your secret door that you showed us. The Paganini Gin Palace yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And and uh, uh, your violins look lovely in their new home, and I hope you're loving it there. Oh, it's all very good. <laughs> Yay. Great place to be through COVID, isn't it? Yes. Yes. A good place to hunker down. Stay tuned for an interview with Damian Stepani, who has traveled through many areas of the Americans, North and South, all the way up through Canada. We'll be back with you soon. Hi, Homo sapiens. I uh, just wanted to let you know that today we're being brought to you by an app called Encoda. That's spelled N-K-O-D-A. Encoda is a sheet music subscription service. So it's like a streaming service? If you've got an iPad or a smartphone and you don't want to be carrying around this random piece of music and this random piece of music, it's all there. They've got millions of pages, thousands of titles, hundreds of publishers. It's all right there ready for you. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing. Uh, they'll, they'll give you a free trial. I'm going to sign up for that. Um, that's N-K-O-D-A. Uh, this is the, the future for musicians, you know, for, for people that are, are working for a living with instruments. Um, everything you want to find is right at your fingertips. And this app is a really great example of that. Now, what I like about this option as a music shop owner so I've got lots of music books that I sell to the kids, but I don't have the floor space to have those thousands of titles. It's much easier for me to stock the things I know are going to sell all day long. And then those little pieces of music, they're available in the ether, thanks to Encoda. Yeah, and the, the music shops of old are all closing, you know, so you, you order stuff and maybe get a used edition in the mail. But if, if you want really nice editions from Boozy and Hawks, Baron Reiter, Chester, Novello, etc., um, this is the way to go. I'm pretty excited about this app. Yes, and uh, they've received praise from Sir Simon Rattle and Ooh. Joyce Dinon. <laughs> Didonato. Didonato. <laughs> so uh, try them out. Go to your local um, app provider and get yourself a free trial. Uh, app Store, that's what I'm trying to say. Go to an mm -hmm. App Store today. Get your free trial. Try out Encoda or visit Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A dot com.
This is Chris Jacoby here with Rosie Deloach and Damian Stepani is joining us from Saltillo, Mexico. It's in the northeast of Mexico. Rosie, you're outside Dallas. I'm outside D.C. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about um, about violin making, luthery um, in this hemisphere and how this hemisphere is bigger than just the United States of America. We're so good at thinking we're the only ones. Yeah, even the fact that we refer to ourselves as America and don't yeah. include the rest of the, yeah, yeah. The continent. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Damian is a friend that I met when he came through outside D.C. to Potter Violins in the most fabulous hippie bus that everyone in the world dreams of heading into and hitting the road on. And uh, he actually made a reality of it the last few years. Um Damian, you said it's hot down there today? Yeah. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rosie. Thank you Hi. for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, so written across your bus, this wonderful German bus that you picked up in, in Argentina, right? Yeah, it's made it in Argentina. It's German, it's Mercedes, but it's made mm -hmm. it in Argentina in 1970. Wow. And you've got your violin making workshop in there, your bed, room for, for Baco, Bacchus the dog. Yeah, that's right. And uh, painted on the side of your bus, you have Luteria sobre Ruedas, uh, forgive my accent, and that <laughs> translates as Luthery on Wheels. Um, and that's, that's your brand, man. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's your lifestyle. It's your grand adventure the last few years. And uh, I was super excited to see online a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's the title of a book you're now finishing about your travels. Yes, uh, I'm finished the book. I'm finishing the book. Um, it, it's from my last five years. Uh, I've been traveling from Argentina to Alaska, crossing 70 different countries. Hell I start, yeah. my goodness. Starting in Argentina, then I pass through Uruguay, then Paraguay, Brazil, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia. Then I ship the bus in a boat to Panama. <laughs> then I cross Central America, Panama, uh, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico. Wow. Then I enter <laughs> to the United States, Canada, Alaska, and then I went back to Canada, United States, and I'm now in the Northeast Mexico. My goodness. If anybody has a finger on the pulse of American luthiery, it's you. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's there's a, a, a community that extends everywhere once you're part of the tribe and you end up finding other people who do what we do or love what we do. And it becomes a theme. Anytime mm -hmm. I visit anywhere, I end up in the company of other people who have the same madness and love for instruments that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoy the company of of other violin makers, and I meet a lot of luthier around America, around yeah. the big America, South, Central, <laughs> and North. <laughs> well, will you tell us how you started instrument making, uh, what yes. your background is there? Yes, I yeah. want to hear your origin story. Okay, I study in Tucumán, in Argentina. There is a school of violin maker that um, was founded by an Italian maker that is called Alfredo de Lungo, and it's the first school of of this continent. Uh, it was founded in 1949, and I start to to learn there. Um, in the school, we make two violins, one viola, one cello, and guitars. So that's where I learn. Tucumán started right after World War II and uh, is uh, the, the Argentinian violin making, let alone guitar making tradition, is really fine. And it's a surprising thing when you look at the market as a whole, how low the prices can be for really finely made Italian instruments out of that school in Argentina in the 50s through the 70s and beyond to, to when you've been there in comparison to something which isn't very nice but wasn't made in 
in Latin America. And it's a, a constant frustration for me seeing bad modern Italian priced at five or six times what really great modern American can go for. Yes, but it's the market. Yeah. Yeah, the bastard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I agree with you that um, I really like the the Tucuman school and the lottery we make there. I'm really proud of my school. Good. That's great. I'd love to hear in your travels some of your favorite violin makers, some of the favorite shops you visited. What really sticks out in your mind? Well, the um, the workshops in United States that are awesome. They are really great and big. Um, well, I learned a lot there. I visit a lot of places in United States. I was in Triangle String and I learned mm -hmm. a lot there. I was in the workshop of Pablo Alfaro. And he hey, Pablo. opened me <laughs> the doors there. And I was in Potter's Violin. That is like, it's not a workshop, it's like a mansion. It's yeah. a mansion is a, it's a good work, mansion. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Like the, no, that's correct. It's okay. totally a mansion. Yeah, it's like the Playboy mansion, but without the girls. <laughs> it's a, yeah, you were you incredible. were with us for a week. It was it was great yes. having you, man. <laughs> yeah, I you. I almost kill everyone with the with the turpentine varnish, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I set him up to varnish uh, in the the attic. Uh, workshop space on a really busy Saturday and there was there was no ventilation and I didn't provide yeah. any fans or anything so he was up there just churning turpentine oh my god <laughs> sorry man yeah I started violin in the Pablo's workshop with Pablo Alfaro and yeah. then I finished some details in triangle string And then I start mm -hmm. varnish in Potter's violin. So it was a violin make in different workshops in the east of the mm -hmm. of United States. That's awesome. So uh, I wanted to ask, tell us, how do you cross the Panama Canal with yeah. a 60s bus, which is 50 foot long, and a, a wolfhound dog? How do you do that? Okay. Um, most people think that the canal, the Panama Canal, is a, is a big problem to cross, but it's only a bridge that if you are not paying attention, you don't know that you are crossing the Panama Canal. Uh, really? It's not a big no. deal, the Panama Canal. The, the, the big deal is the... Darien Gap. Okay. That it's a jungle in the middle of Panama and Colombia. And um, there are no roads. Can you say what that is again? The Darien Gap? The Darien Gap. Darien Gap. Darien Gap. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Yes. El Tapón de Darien. That is a jungle that you can cross by land. And why is that complicated? Because there are no roads. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's a um, politic thing that they can, they don't want to unify uh, South America with Central America. So there are not roads. There is a jungle that you can't cross by land. So you have to ship the, um, the, your vehicle by boat. And I ship my bath with a big boat and we cross in a self boat to the Caribbean and wow. was like five days in the Caribbean and was like a nightmare. Five days yeah. in an, in an open boat with your dog? With three dogs. I traveled <laughs> with three dogs from Argentina to Mexico and with the three dogs, we crossed the, the Caribbean Sea and was not really funny. What's uh, like shaking everywhere. Yeah. So you didn't, uh, this wasn't something where you were going from border to border and showing your passport and showing, showing visas. You were just, you found no, a man no. with a boat and you cross. Yeah. 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 
that's it. Uh, you don't have to to see uh, border agents. You just mm-hmm. cross, like uh, wow. like a Cuban to Miami. Uh, can I ask what what inspired you to do this? What was it within you that said I I want to be a traveling luthier and I I need to make this dream a reality? Alaska. Well, it's uh, the real the reality is that uh, I don't think about Alaska when I was in Argentina. There was not in my plans to get Alaska or to get the United States or to get Mexico. Uh, I really didn't know that I was uh, going so far. I started in Argentina working for orchestras in Argentina and working for social projects in South America. And mm-hmm. there was good. I could work and I like and I was learning and working and traveling and I like and I was like an addiction and I mm. want like more and more. And I say, OK, if I cross the Darien Gap, mm-hmm. I can go to Mexico and mm-hmm. I finish in Mexico. And that was like my dream. And once I get Mexico. I say, okay, why not? I cross United States and keep traveling there, and that's how I get to Alaska without think about where I get there. And I'm here now in in Mexico. And did you you spend some time in? It's in Michoacan, where the the great guitar making school and and this town of like thousands of guitar makers is in Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like um, a town of fantasy. There's a lot of really great um, guitar makers. And I stay like two weeks there uh, learning and share with other makers. That's wonderful. Well, talking about that, how central to your travels is the actual production, making of instruments? You were doing a lot more repair and setup for people, or was the idea to to make instruments to sell as you went? And have you managed to sell some instruments to help pay for your journeys? Well, both. Um, I have like three different kind of works. One is uh, make instruments, make violins, violas, and cellos, and sell it then. And another work is repair for professional orchestras. So I... I work for the different orchestras that I mean. And the other is that the social projects that are orchestra for children mm-hmm. in um, difficult uh, lives. So there I, I work for that project um, without receive money, but I like to do it. So I do these three things to get money to keep traveling. Good for you. I feel like if you make sure you're doing that third thing, then the universe will make sure you make enough money to keep going, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I receive a lot. Like in the United States, a lot of great violin makers open me the doors to um, I keep learning without expect anything from me so the universe give me more than i give to the universe that's great i love hearing that (laughs) yeah well damian i imagine when you are going to cross a border into another country uh there's not a lot of people who manage the border that see a bus like yours um do you run into any issues? Do you They're get questioned the plant, man. <laughs> I finally crossed all the borders of this mm-hmm. this continent of mm-hmm. not all but a lot. Um sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not so easy, but I finally cross. I have all the paper and rules. So they can say me no. So I stay the time um, that I can pass through. Uh, mm-hmm. United States, I think, was the more difficult border to cross. 
Yeah. I, I imagine. But yeah. I cross. Um, I have all the paper of the dog, of the bus, of my visa. But um, I was like scared about the woods, about the tools. But there's no any problem with that. So they don't care that you have a like a an assortment of knives. They're fine with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the they, dog they, they're concerned about. Yeah, they <laughs> they doesn't care. In the border of the United States, I was scared about the dog and the knife and the bus, and they're really doesn't doesn't look of the inside at the bus uh, mm-hmm. and the, they don't ask me the papers of the dog but uh, they have problems with me well, <laughs> okay. but okay we, we talk a lot and then yeah. we talk a lot with another and then they say me okay pass do whatever you want to do Good. yeah yeah. Tell us about the bow makers at Oberlin. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, when I was with uh, Pablo Alfaro, he talked me about Oberlin and the things they do there, and I was like, um, amazing things. So mm-hmm. I say, okay, I want to knew that, but I was late to apply, and also I don't have the money to apply. Mm-hmm. So I can't go to work, but it's in my road to to Canada and Alaska. So I say, okay, can I go to see, only see the works uh, that they done there? And Pablo talked to another person and another person talked to another person to get to Chris Sherman. So I talk Chris and I say, can I go only for take a look and and knew how to work there and Chris said yeah of course you can stay here the weekend and well I was there in the weekend and was really amazing like the the all the violin makers there are all the works that yeah there's the, 60 of the yeah. best makers in the world in that yeah. room. It's, it's, yeah, I, I know. love that place. I God. know. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it's incredible how they share all the information that have. And that's that's more important. And that's amazing. Uh, oh, well, yeah. the, at Monday, I have to keep traveling. And mm. uh, a group of people invite me at Sunday to eat with them. So we are eating and laughing and drinking. Um, they say me, uh, where are you going tomorrow? And I say, I really don't know, but I have to keep traveling. North. Yeah. <laughs> and they say me, why don't you stay with us? Um, and I say, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and they are the bow makers. And say me, stay with us and make a bow. And mm. I say, never make a bow. I don't have woods. I don't have special tools. No but, problem. Uh, no problem. They gave me, they give me tools. They give me wood and they uh, teach me how to make a bow. So I spend one week more in Oberlin with the bow makers making a bow and eating and laughing and drinking and having oh, yeah. a really great time. I love the bow maker's room. That's it's like in the in the violin maker's room people are all kind of tense. The level of of uh of competition can be very high. It can be it's also a wonderful place. But then you go over into the bow room. I go in to see Eben or Evan or Matt Wheeling and uh and somebody's got a beer open at 10 a.m. They're like, "I just broke a stick. Have a beer." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe that because that you say it's it's like that. They broke a bow into my eyes only to <laughs> see where they broke. Some say that they will broke there, and others say no, they will broke there. So they so they broke one to see. Yeah. <laughs> and both and, have rights. They both uh, in oh. both eyes. 
<laughs> and were they placing bets on the location of the break? Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing for me. I really appreciate that Christian Mern opened me the doors to see what happened and the bowmakers invite me to work with them. And was a really great time for me. Um, that experience is in the book also. Nice. Do you have a positive experience that just really sticks out from this whole journey? What was your most positive experience? Uh, I like I don't know. A lot of positive things happen, like this one that I say with the bow makers. Mm-hmm. Working for the different social project also it's really positive for me. Um, keep going is positive for me because in, in Argentina I don't know where to go and every time a door is open so I enter for that door and always uh, it's positive. Um, not now i don't know what happened now my idea was to keep traveling um my idea was to ship my bus to europe and keep traveling in europe asia africa yeah. but uh, now it's not possible i don't know what happened tomorrow not the best time for travel no no now <laughs> i'm okay i'm uh, i'm stop i'm keep uh, living in my bus with my workshop there and I'm making two new violins and I finished nice. this book writing and I'm having a great time here but uh, I can't keep going not not for the moment yeah everything's on pause what was the the scariest thing that comes to your mind in your travels what was the time that you felt most scared or, or or most in in danger alone something to balance that positivity i really don't have a so bad experience but in two times i feel really scared uh, one time was in colombia i was driving uh, at the day um, some people say me don't go that way because it's really dangerous because of the cartels? Um, yeah, the cartels, um, some other uh, political problems with the uh-huh. people there, with the farmers. Um, okay, I, I don't care, so I, I go anyway. Um, I crossed two motorcycles that was like uh, in the opposite direction I go. Um, they look at to me and I look at there. Um, I keep looking for the mirror and I saw that they start to talking and turn around and start to follow me. And was two motorcycles, so I see one motorcycle in one mirror and the other in the other mirror. So follow me like... Oh, or a big distance and I don't know what to do I don't have any weapons uh, but uh, I have I don't know a lot of knife and a big big uh, bus yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, nothing happened nothing happened they follow me like uh, I don't know how many times and then start talking again and then turn around again and they keep going one way and I keep going the other way and nothing happened, nothing. Hallelujah. The other moment I was scared is was in Michoacán, in Mexico. Uh, I don't know if, if I will explain good, but uh, there is a lot of problems there with the cartel and with the police, with the people himself that have uh, defense with guns, so um, some group of person with guns try to stop me in the in the road, and I doesn't stop. I keep going, but um, my bus is really slow, 
So mm-hmm. if they want, they can follow me, but uh, they don't follow. They say, um, they say like stop with the with the hand, and I say like uh, bye with the hand. I shake the hand and uh, keep mm-hmm. going. You wave to them bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and nothing happened. Nothing happened, but I was scared. <laughs> You're a very likable guy and you have good instincts. And uh, I love that you have been able to go everywhere that that the doors opened for you the last five years. And I'm glad you're safe. And uh, hey, will you say hi to Baco for me? Yeah, of course. I love your dog. He's a good dog. Baco is a good dog. Damian, what is the name of your book? Uh, the book is uh, in Spanish. is Lutería sobre ruedas. That uh, is like lottery on wheels. Is there any hope of us getting to read it in English at some point in the future? I I hope so. Not by the moment. Okay. I'm writing in Spanish. My English is not so good, like like you can hear. It's great. And for write is uh, is difficult too, but. Um, for the moment, it will be in Spanish, and then mm-hmm. uh, I love to have a version in English to to share to all the people I meet there. Amen. Um, like Chris Jacobi, his name will be there. <laughs> oh, I'm in the book. Am I in the oh. book? Because yeah, your, yeah, your dog book. Bite, bites me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That experience is in the book. <laughs> oh my goodness. It. Well, I can't wait yeah. to read it yeah. in in Spanish with my dictionary next to me, and I'll I'll definitely let Rosie know how good it is, even though she can't okay. read it. <laughs> despite despite okay. my Texas life, and when is the release date for this book? I don't have a, a day. Okay, I don't know. Um, I'm finished the text, and I'm finished the um, the illustrations of maps that will be in the book. So I don't know, but I hope that one month more. Oh my goodness. I can't wait. Well, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be happy to to give it a a shout out here and uh, we can probably get, uh, get, you know, somebody with better Spanish than me to do a a bilingual shout out. Maybe we can ask Pablo or, or Jaime to come on. Yeah, it will be great. will be great. Well, thank you again, Damian Stepani, for joining us today, telling us about your adventures. Really enjoyed you. Yeah, man. Stay safe. Stay stay as cool as you can. I hope that a travel ban gets lifted soon if you got somewhere you want to go. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It was really a pleasure. It was an honor to be here. I really like your podcast, so keep keep doing. And please excuse my bad English. Thank you. You did great. Thank you. You did great. Hey there, Bench Monkeys. This episode is brought to you in part by House of Note out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, a full-service violin shop and the largest in the state in operation since 1959. From the beginner student to the fine player, House of Note has a mantra of violins for everybody. Violence. Not violence. Violins for everybody. House of Note wants you guys out there to know that, yes, they do sell modern makers' violins. So if you're looking to sell your next piece, look these guys up. Happy 60th year of Operation House of Note, and here's to 60 more. Welcome back, everybody. I've got Chris and Jerry. Hey. We're going to tie a bow on this thing. So, guys, uh, we have just talked to several people about uh, American making or making in the Americas, to be more specific. Uh, Jerry, you've got a little story for us. Well, I've always been attracted to, I'll say, oddball instruments that would come into the shop, things that other people say, why do you want to work on that? And I'd be like, well, because it's interesting. And so (laughs) one day we got this email from this woman who had just been on vacation in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And she she has this this violin, and gosh, you know, she says it looks kind of crude, and it's it's not even varnished. And she sends a picture of this instrument, and I look at the thing, and I said, I knew that 
okay, this isn't a typical violin. Did it have a jackal head? It did not. It did not have a jackal head, but you're on the right track. So talking with this woman, she had just visited the Mexican state of Chihuahua, which shares a border with Texas and uh, New Mexico. And then all the pieces started to click together. This is an instrument made by the native peoples of, of Copper Canyon, the Terra Humera Indians. Mm-hmm. And it took some doing to convince her that this instrument is as it should be. It should be unvarnished. These are people who picked up the, the sort of violin-shaped object from Jesuit priests and they combined their religious practices with that of Catholicism and the violin or their interpretation of the violin fell into these practices. And they continued making instruments from, I'll say the, I don't know, early to, to middle of the 18th century up until this day, you can still buy brand new Terra Humera violins. Yeah, I've heard earlier, I've heard that it, it started at the end of the 16th century, but, you know, nobody has any yeah. proof of that. Yeah, yeah, we can't we can't find those. Well, the Jesuits left, I think, in the 1750s. Uh-huh. And these instruments are made out of fairly soft woods compared yeah. to our European traditions, so they're yeah. not going to stick around for 300 years. No, they're going to, I believe they're made out of some form of pine, and it's mm. the, the entire thing, and it's just going to disintegrate. And that's why they're making new ones even to this day. I love those fiddles. They look so cool. They look amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the Terra Humera. Uh, I, I want to get my hands on one for real someday. I, I see them in pictures. Britt's grandparents have one. I think I sent you guys a picture. Yeah, last time I got mm-hmm. to St. Louis. And it's cool. Now, Chris... You have a little update for us. Uh, we had it a couple episodes ago, the How Are You Coping Colin episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, had some guys tell us about a raffle they were doing. Can you update everybody on that? Yeah, yeah. The The raffle ended. So this was Jake Brillhart, um, Evan Bodak-Turner, and Evan Orman. Um, and there's a place called the, the Seven Stars Arts in Action which provides small grants to musicians who've been out of work because of coronavirus and pandemic issues. Um, So Jake offered to make a violin and the two bow-making superheroes uh, made a bow together and they raised $70,500. Wow. Yeah. Nuts for these $20 tickets. It's so awesome. And uh, I I have liked seeing on Facebook that a, there are musicians speaking up and have been for weeks now saying, hey, I got my grant already. Um, Mm -hmm. Because there's always the fear that it just gets swallowed up by the parent corporation. And you find out that the federal rules for these things, there's only a percentage that's required to actually go what you're fundraising for. Because a nonprofit has expenditure, it it has budgetary issues, they might have, you know, a brick and mortar that has bills, they pay salaries. Um, But what I'm seeing is that there are people getting uh, grants of a of a of you know an undisclosed amount already that is helping them and their families weather this time. That's fantastic. And this went to musicians. Yeah. Oh, and guess who won the the raffle? Who won? Jennifer Hallinar, Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> so yeah, one of the one of the tribe pulled the prize out of the the grip of, <laughs> of some rando. I love it. Congratulations, Congratulations, Jennifer. Congratulations. <laughs> Doesn't Chris Ulbricht has have some sort of nickname for Jennifer? I don't, I don't know. I, or maybe I might, I might have that wrong. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. When when we did the the crazy trivia episode, he named her as the pirate queen of the violin. Maker. Yes, <laughs> yes. So the pirate queen struck again. Yeah, love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I we got a really delightful listener feedback email just I think like two days ago and I wanted to share with you guys this comes from Linda I think it's pronounced Les Pets L-E-S-P-E-T-S Hi Linda or Le Pet I don't know and uh, she first of all says she loves a podcast and discovered it recently and she said I work with my husband Antoine also a violin maker 
and they have a they have a workshop in Sydney, Australia. We both studied the Mirecourt School of Violin Making, and man, do French people take school seriously. Nice. <laughs> I, I think there was a bit of culture shock. I may have been a little too relaxed for them. I once called into the head teacher's office at, I'm sorry, I was once called into the head teacher's office at the end of term and told, I didn't look like I was working. When I pointed out that my cello was coming along just fine, like everyone else's, if they cared to look at my workbench, not a hard thing to do, seeing there was only 10 of us in the classroom. The teacher an- answered, wee, wee, wee. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, oh, no. I, yeah, I know. I know. Wee, wee, wee. I know it is just you don't look like you are working. And that, my friends, is it in a nutshell. They were great. I had a wonderful time there and learned so much. There was even a murder that happened when I was there. I'll have to tell you about it sometime. <laughs> and then she goes on to say that uh, one time some council workers were working on a lane and um, they just had a small sign saying, Les Pets and Camden Party, LTD. So one of them came up to ask what kind of business we were because he and his mates thought it was a brothel. <laughs> Jeez. Love your work. Keep it up. And I shall be listening more. Kind regards, Linda. Thank you, Linda. I love that any like vaguely French name in Australia, they're like, oh, it's a brothel. <laughs> Boy. Boy. <laughs> well, guys, would you like to send us a story about your murder? Wait, no, that's a different podcast. <laughs> um, uh, tell us the story about your experience making, learning the trade, weird stuff on your bench. Uh, are you a player and you have a horror story about your violin falling apart in the middle of a performance? Do you work on other instruments? We want to hear your story too. Email us at mail at omopod.com or leave us a message on the Omo phone, 240-686-5345. And uh, guys, we are going to do a bit more of Making in the Americas for the next episode. So tell us your favorite American making stories. Uh, Canadians, you've got some stuff up there for us. You know, that, that that's hard to get Canadians to be prideful about their stuff. They just don't talk uh-huh. about it. So Canadians, if you're out there. But they're polite. Come yeah. on, just do it. Yeah, we want to talk to you guys. I think there's uh, more to be discovered in South America, but we have barely, barely scratched the surface. If anybody wants to do fan art of David Burgess shirtless holding bacon, a rough arching gouge, and a pair of American flag shorts, I would appreciate that. I still have that picture. You know how Will um, Will Woodby posted a picture of him shirtless? Yeah. I still have the little, like, the Omo stickers photoshopped on his nipples. <laughs> We've never shared that one. I think that's a good one. It's Will, it's Will just turned, I think, 68 or 69 and dyed his hair blue, and he looks amazing. I love it. Love that guy. All right. Take care. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Omo is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie DeLoach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. <laughs>